One of my favorite films of all time is Fiddler on the Roof. I don't know how many times I have watched that presentation. In fact, I remember a few years ago when the Playmill Theater in West Yellowstone was performing the play, I went there twice in the same summer to watch it. In my mind, I can still see and hear the main character talking to himself out loud. And those of you who are familiar with the play or the film, the movie, know what I'm talking about, where the, the scene freezes and the main character, Octavia, says, on the one hand, but on the other hand, and he talks with himself. One of the reasons why I like the film so much is because it does such an excellent job portraying both a Jewish family and a Jewish mindset. Tradition is extremely important. That is why when the man's daughters want to marry someone the matchmaker hasn't arranged, the man has to go through so much deliberation with himself about the decision. And those are the scenes where he talks to himself out loud, saying, on the one hand, but on the other hand, Do you know that there is a book in the Bible like that? There is a book in the Bible in which the author thinks out loud so we can hear him. And, just like in Fiddler on the Roof, the author goes back and forth in his thinking, sometimes seeming even to contradict himself. The book, of course, is called Ecclesiastes. Let's turn to it together in Hebrew Scripture after... Job, Psalms, Proverbs, then Ecclesiastes. This book may present the clearest picture in all of the Bible of what thinking will be like at the end of the age. Now, the Bible is always relevant, but there's a sense in which the book of Ecclesiastes is especially relevant because it speaks so pointedly to people living in 21st century America and in many other countries here in the 21st century. Why do I say that? Simply this, because many, many people today have experienced or are experiencing the very kind of life that the author of Ecclesiastes writes about in this book. In fact, there are even many teenagers in this world who fit into this category. So this book is extremely relevant. It was written by King Solomon. Notice how it opens. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. As you read through this book, you will see passages that point to the fact that this particular son of David, who was king in Jerusalem, was none other than Solomon. He doesn't state that specifically here in verse 1, other than to say he was the son of David. He doesn't specify which son of David. However, no other descendant of David fits the descriptions of the author except for Solomon. And that's a very important issue when it comes to understanding the message of this book. Let me explain why. If you know the story of Solomon's life, then you know he started on a very good note. He had a great start. When the Lord came to him, offering him whatever he wanted, Solomon asked for wisdom. 
So God gave Solomon that wisdom. In addition, God also gave him wealth and prosperity and peace. In fact, the prosperity of Solomon's time is probably unparalleled in history. Maybe the only nation that has known the peace, the prosperity, the the wealth that Solomon experienced is our own country, which is why I say this book is so relevant to 21st century Americans. Let me, in sort of a fairy tale fashion, though this is no fairy tale, let me describe to you what life was like during Solomon's time. Here we go. Once upon a time, there was a nation that was so wealthy that every one of the king's drinking vessels in his huge complex of buildings was made of gold. Every one. He made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with pure gold. The throne was so large that it took six steps to ascend to the throne. There were armrests on either side of the throne, and two lions stood beside the armrests. In addition, there was a lion on the right hand and left hand side of the six steps that ascended toward the throne. This king made 200 large shields out of gold, and each shield contained about 15 pounds of gold. He then made 300 more shields out of gold, and each of these smaller shields contained about 5 pounds of gold. He was able to do this because he received nearly 800,000 ounces of gold a year from surrounding nations. In fact, there was so much gold in his kingdom that silver was considered worthless. It was said that this king made silver as common in his capital as stones. In addition to all of this wealth, the nation enjoyed peace, safety, and tranquility. It was said that the people in this nation enjoyed life by eating, drinking, and rejoicing. They experienced idyllic conditions. But this is no fairy tale. This is the true story of the nation of Israel under King Solomon as recorded early in the book of 1 Kings. That description fits exactly with what the author of the book of Ecclesiastes says about himself. The author talks about his wisdom. He talks about his unequaled wealth. He talks about his opportunities for pleasure. He talks about his extensive building projects. So we know that the author of Ecclesiastes was Solomon. And if you know the rest of his story, then you know that things didn't stay the way I just described a moment ago. That is because near the end of Solomon's life, his heart began to turn away from the Lord, and the Lord removed his hand of blessing from the United Kingdom of Israel. Back up with me to 1 Kings chapter 11 before we look at a survey of this book, Ecclesiastes. Go back to the left to 1 Kings chapter 11. Follow as I read the first 10 verses of this 11th chapter of 1 Kings. It opens this way, But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely 
They will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemish, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem. That would probably be the Mount of Olives. And for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this very thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. I cannot begin to describe to you how tragic this story is. The sad story of King Solomon may be the most tragic human story ever, with the exception of Judas Iscariot. When Solomon's heart turned from the Lord, his life began to sour. Everything became negative. And maybe the most tragic part of all is that we have no record in Hebrew Scripture that Solomon ever repented. Even if he did, much of his later life was lived in this awful condition of being out of harmony with God. During this time, Solomon began to think. During this time, Solomon began to think out loud. In fact, he not only thought out loud, God made him write his thoughts down for all who would come behind him. Those thoughts are recorded for us in the book of Ecclesiastes. Let's go back there to that book and consider its message together. Psalms, Proverbs, then Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes is a very difficult book to interpret in many places. For one thing, it's a very negative book. That is because it was written by a man who had shoved God out of his life. You could almost say that the book of Ecclesiastes is the opposite of the book of Psalms. In the Psalms, David talks about trusting the Lord and resting in the Lord. But there's none of that in the book of Ecclesiastes. Instead, the book records the thoughts and the musings of a man who had the means to have all sorts of experiences in life. And because he shoved God out of his life, his experiences were all vanity. This is exactly where a lot of people are at today. You see, in Solomon's time, he was, one, he was only one out of millions of people who was in the position to have all the experiences he had. I mean, he could travel, he could try this, he could try that, he could do all sorts of things. But because of the prosperity here in America, 
There are many people who are in the position to experience a lot of the same things that Solomon experienced. Solomon was unique in his day, one out of millions. But today, many, many have the same opportunities Solomon had. And that is why I said earlier that this book is so relevant to 21st century America. This book is primarily natural revelation. What I mean is there is no discussion about the law of God revealed to Moses. There's nothing about God's covenant with his people Israel. There is no statement in this book that begins with, thus says the Lord. In fact, the personal name of God, Yahweh, usually notified in our Bibles, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that never appears in this book. There's virtually no mention of special revelation. That is because this book is about Solomon's disastrous experience. It's interesting to note that the passages in which Solomon speaks of enjoying life, and there are several scattered throughout the book, the passages in which Solomon speaks of enjoying life, he speaks in the third person. Not first person, I. It's he or a man. He's talking about what he observed. He's talking about someone else. He had no enjoyment in life when he was out of harmony with God. And beloved, that is exactly what God wants you to understand and me to understand and modern man to understand. That is why this book is in the Bible. Look at the opening verse again. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. The word preacher here in verse 1 might be a little confusing to you. Was Solomon a preacher? No, not in the sense of how we use the word today. This Hebrew word refers to one who addresses an assembly of people. The Greek word for assembly is the word ecclesia, and that's where the title Ecclesiastes comes from. It's a form of ecclesia, Ecclesiastes, assembly. So Solomon refers to himself as the preacher because he probably delivered this address to an assembly of wise men in ancient Israel. And what was his theme when he gave this special address? What was his message? We don't have to read very far to find it. Verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? That's it. That's what life is apart from God. It is empty. It is meaningless. It is futile. It is vain. It is useless. It is absurd. It is nonsense. That word vanity appears 37 times in this book. So there's no question, there's no doubt about what the theme of this book is. It's vanity. That's a pretty negative message, isn't it? You're not going to sell many books with that theme. Life is all a bunch of nonsense. That doesn't sell. Your best life now, that sells. Life is a bunch of nonsense, doesn't sell. 
But that is exactly what life is when you push God out. It is true, as has been said by many people many times through the years in many different ways, that there is a God-shaped vacuum or void in the heart of every person, and nothing can really fill that except God himself. Possessions can't. Popularity can't. Prestige can't. Pleasure can't. Power can't. Nothing can. And that is the message that screams forth from this book. Down in verse 12, we read, I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven, this burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised or they may be afflicted. See how negative his attitude is? He says, life is a grievous task that God has given to man to be afflicted. And he says in verse 14, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be numbered. I communed with my heart, saying, Look, I have attained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge, and I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this is also grasping for the wind, for in much wisdom is much grief. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. It's almost as if Solomon is saying, my wisdom and knowledge did not gain me contentment. I have come to the conclusion that ignorance is bliss. And he's right. If you're looking for contentment and satisfaction in wisdom and knowledge, you're not going to find it there. Over in chapter 2, he will say that wisdom is greater than foolishness. But if you have pushed God out of your life then you're not going to find contentment or satisfaction in any of your knowledge. Knowledge then becomes mere philosophical speculation. And beloved, there are a lot of people in our society who fit into this category. Think about it. We are living in the midst of an information explosion. There are people in our society who have degrees upon degrees I remember a few years ago when I was in a place in Russia over, in, over near Novosibirsk, Siberia. The, t- the title of this city I was in was called Akadem because it's where all the academics were. And I was told when I went there to teach in this seminary, I was told that if you, when you walk down the street, almost every person you will walk past has a Ph.D., Almost every person, because the Soviet Union years ago had sent all of their top scientists and physicists to this one location. It's quite a weird feeling walking down the street, seeing these people degrees after degrees. Our society is is similar. Ours is an educated society. But are people happy? Are people fulfilled? Are they content? And satisfied in life? What a joke to even ask the question. People aren't any more fulfilled and content and satisfied today than they were years ago. They aren't any happier. 
In fact, because education in large measure has completely pushed God out of the picture, society as a whole is far less content today. There's far more depression today. I don't know of anyone who would try to argue that. Far more depression in society today. Far more anxiety in society today. There's far more despair. When you watch, read, or listen to the news, then it's easy to agree with Solomon's statement that ignorance is bliss. There's no fulfillment in knowledge apart from God. Look at what he says in chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth. Therefore enjoy pleasure. But surely this also was vanity. I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. What is he describing here? He is describing hedonism. The, phil- the philosophy of hedonism is that the purpose of life is pleasure and the pursuit of pleasure. And that is what Solomon said he gave himself to in these verses. What did he find when he abandoned himself to the pursuit of pleasure? What did he find? The last phrase in verse 1 tells us, this also was vanity. Boy, does this ever describe our society. I don't think it would be an overstatement to say we are living in the most hedonistic society ever. Because think about it this way. People make billions of dollars inventing ways for others to pursue pleasure and try to enjoy pleasure. And what's the result? Are people happy? Are people fulfilled? Are they content in life, satisfied in life? Again, you know the answer. The answer is no. Along with all the new ways to pursue pleasure, think about this. There are also many new ways to deal with the despondency of life. There are more drugs than ever before, more alcoholic beverages than ever before, more chemicals, more therapies, more philosophies, more counselors. But it's all empty. Verse 4, I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards. And I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings And uh, of the provinces, I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kinds. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor. So he looked for fulfillment in things, and accomplishments, and possessions. That's what he's saying here. And what did he find? Verse 11, Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done, and on all the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity. And grasping for the wind, there was no profit under the sun. It all leads to futility. You know people like this. 
I know people like this. Maybe they're your neighbors. Maybe you're like this. You think you're going to find happiness in things and possessions and accomplishments, but you won't. It may take you a while to realize that. It may take you a long time, but you won't. It's all vanity. It's all vanity because whether you're rich or poor, wise or foolish, accomplished or unaccomplished, you're going to die. In verse 15, Solomon says, So I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart, this also is vanity. For there is no more remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever, since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die? Dies just like a fool. Everyone dies. Therefore I hated life, because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me, for all is vanity and grasping for the wind. That is exactly how a lot of people feel about life. They hate it. They are just where Solomon was at when he ignored God and refused God and shoved God out of his life. But at the end of this chapter, Solomon makes an exceedingly important observation. Skip down to verse 24. He says this, Nothing is better for a man, notice the third person here, Nothing is better for a man that he should than that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. This summary statement occurs six times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I believe it is pivotal, pivotal for understanding this book. As I mentioned earlier in the message, every time this statement occurs, it is in the third person. Now think about that. When Solomon pauses in this book to speak of enjoying life, he speaks in the third person. That's because he's talking about someone else. He had no enjoyment in life when he was out of harmony with God. But he observed, he, he knew, he was wise enough to catch it that life can be enjoyed when you are in fellowship with God. There can be great fulfillment and contentment and satisfaction, even in simple things like eating, drinking, and working. Life has meaning. Life has purpose when you are in tune with God. And Solomon could see that, but he wasn't experiencing it at this stage in his life. Some of you here may be in the same position. You can see the peace and contentment that others have, and you know why they have it. It's because they are at peace with God. That's the only way you'll know that same fulfillment. In chapter 3, we read this same thought. Look at chapter 3, verse 12. He says, I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. There it is again. Life can be meaningful. Life can be enjoyed when you are in fellowship with God. But when you are not, the outlook on life is very fatalistic. Look at chapter 3, verse 19. Skip down to verse 19. He says, For what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them. As one dies, so dies the other. Surely they have all one breath. Man has no advantage over animals, for all is vanity. All go to one place. Now, he doesn't mean 
everyone goes to heaven or hell. He's not talking about eternity. He's talking about the grave. All go to one place. All are from the dust and all return to the dust. Everybody dies. That kind of outlook on life leads to the pessimism expressed in chapter 4. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. He says, Therefore I praised the dead who are already dead, more than the living who are still alive. Yet better than both is he who has never existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. I know of people who believe that very thing. They believe that we, would be, we all would be better off if we had not even been born. That's the conclusion you're forced to when you lock God out of your life. No accomplishment can fill the void in your heart. No accomplishment can fill the void in your life when you refuse God. That's the message of chapter 4. Chapter 5 continues describing this futility. Look at chapter 5, verse 10. He says, He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. Down in verse 15, As he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return, to go as he came, and he shall take nothing from his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. He is saying there is no satisfaction in money. There is no satisfaction in wealth. But when you are right with God... You can enjoy the blessings he gives you. Down in verse 18, here is what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him, for it is his heritage. And for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. For he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. That reminds me of 1 Timothy 6.17 where Paul says, God gives us richly all things to enjoy, but we can't enjoy them apart from him. Now maybe this would be a good time to pause and make a very important clarification. Solomon is not suggesting here, this book does not suggest that A non-Christian or an unbeliever or a person who's not right with God, this is not suggesting that people who are not right with God, that they can't have any fun. Well, they can have fun. They absolutely can have fun. Hebrews 11 talks about the passing pleasures of sin. There is pleasure in sin for a while, temporarily, not ultimately. So don't misconstrue the message. Solomon isn't saying there is no temporary pleasure, no temporary fun in life, no temporary enjoyment. He just says that after a while, eventually, it's all empty. It's all vanity. Look at chapter 6, verse 3. He says, If a man begets a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with goodness, or indeed he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than he. In other words, early death is superior to an unfulfilled life. And that is true when you shove God out of your life. As you move into chapter 7, Solomon begins to set forth some proverbs for which he is famous. 
This is one of the things that makes this book difficult to interpret verse by verse. I mean, think about this. Solomon is, Solomon is deliberating. He's thinking out loud with this on the one hand, but on the other hand kind of reasoning. He goes back and forth in his thinking, sometimes even contradicting himself. Chapters 7 through 12 are examples of that. Solomon did have great wisdom from the Lord. And that comes through occasionally in these chapters. That is what I mean is you, you will read this book, and as you read it, especially in chapters 7 through 12, you'll say, that's a good statement. That's an insight. That's good. That's right. That's wise. That's insightful. So his wisdom comes through at times, but during the later years of his life, he lived and thought foolishly, and that comes through in these chapters. He's heading the right direction in chapters 7 through 12, but it seems that he never comes around completely. And the reason I say that is because all the way over in chapter 12, verse 8, he again says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. But as a whole, these chapters express more divine wisdom than merely human wisdom, and they are more positive than 1 through 6. However, you can still see Solomon slip back into his despondency. Look at chapter 7, for example. Chapter 7, verse 1 says, A good name is better than precious ointment. Now, that's true. A good name is better than precious ointment. In other words, there are few things more valuable in life than having a good reputation, a good name, a good testimony. That's a positive statement. But notice how quickly Solomon slips back into his despondent attitude. Very next phrase. And the day of death is better than the day of one's birth. Down in verse 15, it comes through again. Just skip down to verse 15. I have seen everything in my days of vanity. There is a just man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. He's saying life isn't fair. Just men perish in their righteousness. Their lives aren't preserved. Wicked people prolong life sometimes. They prosper. And that's the way these final chapters unfold, back and forth, from positive to negative, from negative to positive, as Solomon thinks out loud. Look at chapter 8, verse 13. He says, But it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity which occurs on earth, that there are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. Again, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. Things that ought to happen to righteous people happen to the wicked, and things that we would assume that should only happen to the wicked people happen to the righteous. Solomon couldn't figure it out. It's all vanity. He goes from the positive to the negative. But then he follows with another one of his summary statements, verse 15. So I commended enjoyment because a man has nothing better under the sun than to eat, drink, and be merry, for this will remain with him in his labor all the days of his life, which God gives him under the sun. And that's the message of Ecclesiastes. Life can be enjoyed when you are in fellowship with God. There can be great fulfillment in life, contentment in life, satisfaction, even in simple things like eating, drinking, working. 
And when I say that, it should remind you of some of the statements of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Colossians 3, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. And whatever you do, do heartily as unto the Lord. Life has meaning when you're in tune with God. Life has purpose when you're in tune with God. So I want you to notice how this book closes. Skip over to chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 1. Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth, before the difficult days come, and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. In other words, let me just paraphrase what Solomon is saying here. Don't wait until you've come to the end of your life to begin living life under the awareness of the watchful eye of your Creator. Don't wait until you've come to the end of your road. Or to say it another way, don't think that you have to experience, especially speaking now to young people here, don't think you have to experience all the pollution to appreciate clean air. Get in tune with God when you're young and stay that way throughout life. Verse 13 says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is man's all. And when you live life that way, then there is meaning. There is purpose. There is satisfaction. There is fulfillment. Life can be enjoyed when you are in fellowship with God. Jesus said it this way in John 10.10, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Beloved, God is not a cosmic killjoy. God did not create us to be miserable. He wants us to enjoy life. Again, 1 Timothy 6, God gives us richly things to enjoy. But we have to get the order right. Now listen to me. We have to get the order right. I'm going to say it several ways. So that maybe one of the way, one of the statements will lock in your mind. We have to get the order right. Holiness comes before happiness. I'll say it another way. Sanctification comes before satisfaction. Fellowship with God comes before fulfillment in life. A genuine personal relationship with the Lord comes before pleasure. That's the right order. Holiness before happiness, sanctification before satisfaction, fellowship with God before fulfillment, a relationship with the Lord before pleasure. That's the message. The timeless message of this book called Ecclesiastes. Let's bow together as we close. And as we bow together here in the final minute that remains, this would be a good time just to think about your own life to see if you are, if you're pursuing things in the right order. Holiness before happiness. Sanctification before satisfaction. Or do you have the order reversed, thinking that you can find satisfaction, fulfillment in life 
outside of God's parameters, outside of a passionate pursuit of God. I, as I said more than once in this message, this, is, this book is so relevant to us today because we have the opportunity to do in large measure what Solomon did. We want to travel. We want to try this. We want to experiment with that. We want to pursue this pleasure. Most people in America can do that. But most people who would be intellectually honest after a time would say with Solomon, it's empty. It's meaningless. It doesn't bring contentment. It doesn't bring satisfaction. Don't learn that the hard way. Don't learn that the hard way. Do as Ecclesiastes said, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. Father, may we hear, may we hear well the powerful message of Ecclesiastes. It's obviously something that you want us to hear because you made sure that Solomon, even in his despondency, his negativity, you made sure that it was recorded and preserved in Scripture. And although it has always been a message for all times, it just does seem that in a unique way it applies to us living here in 21st century America, where all of these things are right at our disposal, right at our fingertips, all of these pursuits, all of these pleasures. And of course, many, many people in, in our nation are pursuing these things wholeheartedly. And how sad that after years and years, so many finally admit it's vanity, it's empty, no contentment, no satisfaction, no fulfillment. May we as your people stand out as different. May we enjoy your good and gracious gifts to us in life, but in the right order, holiness before happiness, sanctification before satisfaction, fellowship with you before fulfillment. May we always keep the order right and live accordingly. In closing, I want to pray for anyone who is here with us who, who is, is on the wrong pursuit, for trying to pursue pleasure, trying to pursue happiness, and hopefully finding that they are coming to a dead-end street. May they not just despair of life, but in 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 instead turn to you, Father, and turn to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.